Hello, and welcome to the Tech Turret Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates you pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize them through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, over the past few years, uh, since the 2016 election, certainly, uh, there have been many different postmortems trying to understand what exactly happened and how Donald Trump got elected, despite what seems uh, clear to be little in the way of qualifications, knowledge, policy understanding, or competence. <laughs> many different narratives uh, have emerged, uh, but one that certainly caught on very quickly was a uh, blame the internet narrative uh, with a particular focus on Facebook and with it two separate aspects of a disinformation campaign that, that have heavily leveraged Facebook to some extent. Uh, the first was Cambridge Analytica, which is of course the British company that used uh, somewhat dubious means to supposedly send very targeted political messages to Facebook. Facebook users. Uh, and the second was efforts by state-backed uh, Russian trolls to both so dis discord and influence the electorate away from Hillary Clinton. Uh, a few have challenged uh, just how much of an impact either one of these efforts had, uh, with some pointing out that the uh, level of influence in, uh, enjoyed by either operation was actually fairly limited. Uh, however, most of the discussion was quite limited and based upon well, mostly theory and anecdotes. Uh, last fall, uh, a fairly wonderful and astounding book uh, came out that actually looks at the data of how news, information, and disinformation spread in the years leading up to the election and also in the year after the election. Uh, the book is called Network Propaganda, and it's written by three well-known experts at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Uh, and it's, I would say, a really important and worthwhile book, and I highly recommend everyone read it. It is um, very detailed and, and physically heavy. <laughs> the book is, uh, just picking it up is, is heavy, but the, the material is heavy, but, but in a very readable uh, way. So I, I certainly suggest people read it. Uh, the book is subtitled Manipulation, Disinformation, and Radicalization in American Politics, and the authors present uh, what I would say is a, a fairly astounding amount of data, complete with charts and graphs demonstrating how we should be looking much more at uh, the broader right-wing media ecosystem led almost entirely by Fox News uh, and the willingness of a small group of operations to effectively parrot whatever position was taken by Donald Trump, no matter how ludicrous it might be. Um, now, I should note up front that I've said before that I tend to hate the distinct distinction of right-wing versus left-wing as a description because I, I rarely see them used in ways that are useful or helpful, uh, and especially recently they don't actually seem to represent a uh, coherent, consistent uh, position in terms of policy. Uh, instead, they uh, tend to be used as a slur against the other team. 
however, in this case, I will use the phrases, and the book uses the phrases, uh, and I think it makes sense in the context of the book because it's the best sort of current shorthand to demonstrate the differences between the two major political parties and the effective positions that they take during the election. Uh, the lead author on the book is Yochai Bankler, uh, who is the co-director of the Berkman Klein Center, as well as a professor of entrepreneurial legal studies at Harvard. Uh, the other two authors are Robert Ferris and Hal Roberts, uh, but I'm pleased to have Yochai Bankler on the podcast today to discuss this very important work. So, Yochai, thanks for coming on the podcast. Very happy to be with you, Mike. So uh, let's let's start with the, the obvious question that everyone always asks when, when you have a new book out, which is sort of what, what made you decide to write this particular book? Well, we've been building this system to try to understand media ecosystems uh, for almost, uh, for, for actually over a decade now in collaboration with Ethan Zuckerman uh, uh, at uh, who, who runs the Center for Civic Media at the MIT Media Lab. And we've aimed it at more specific uh, battles, the net neutrality battle, the Sopa Pippa uh, battle. Uh, and uh, by the middle of 2016, it became clear that this election was quite different. And so we aimed it at a much, much larger data set, uh, analyzing something like an order of magnitude more stories than we had in prior rounds and for a much longer period uh, because it, it was quite clear to us that we needed empirical anchoring for what was going on no matter what would happen in the election uh, and, and to try to understand what's actually going on. So can, can you discuss a little bit about you know what exactly it is, what this technology is that, that you've used? And, I, and, and we've you know pointed to examples of, of how you've used it in the past. I mean, the examples that you talked about with SOPA PIPA and net neutrality, and, and it's really interesting. But for people who aren't aware of, of what the technology is, can you explain it a little bit? Sure. Um, we have developed a platform called Media Cloud, which essentially uh, goes out on the web and ingests stories from tens of thousands of sources. We now uh, basically collect about a million stories a day from 60,000 uh, sources around the world, puts them in a, data set, in a database, separates them out into text so that you can do text analysis, uh, keeps the HTML so you can actually then look at the materials, analyzes them in terms of which stories are linking to which other stories. We then have additional abilities to go out and look for data that's available publicly from Facebook on how often it's shared on Facebook. We use other systems to also look at how stories are tweeted, who's tweeting them, how often they're being tweeted, etc. What this gives us is a, a long-term picture of who's publishing what, what is, uh, um, what is popular, what isn't popular, what sites are closely connected to each other as sources of authority because they link to each other uh, very often, what sites on the demand side, what sites people uh, read together. So do readers of uh, Breitbart uh, mostly read the Daily Caller and Fox News? Do they also read the Gateway Pundit? Do they ever read uh, the HuffPo? Those mm -hmm. kinds of questions that we, we get by looking at these uh, stories. 
uh, and we collect essentially every story uh, online that mentions a given string. So for purposes of the election, we essentially looked at all stories, any story that was online that mentioned any of the candidate names from April of 2015 until election day. Hmm. And that was about two million stories. And then we looked at another year and, and something for the first year of the Trump presidency with a broader search query that was mostly about um, American politics, national politics, generally around uh, the presidency and national politics, which produced another two million stories. So the book essentially analyzes these four million stories. Who said what? When did they say it? How often were they tweeted? How often were they Facebook shared? What sort of influence they had among media producers? What sort of influence did they have among media consumers? Uh, that's and 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 what language did they use? How did they frame things? All of these we can now use quite sophisticated uh, data analysis techniques to actually look at, at at the debate. Yeah, and in in going into this, did you expect to find anything in particular, or or were you unsure? What what, what did you think before you did the analysis? So we. The, there's the baseline uh, theory. Mm -hmm. um, some call it echo chambers, uh, primarily of that people, when they have a lot of choices, only read what's consistent with their own views. Some uh, call it filter bubbles, which is to say that uh, uh, the algorithms of the firms themselves push people into these bubbles. Uh, uh, and only feed them what they what they'll click on or what they'll see, but in any event, uh, the broad theoretical assertions are that we should have seen a fairly polarized uh, uh, media ecosystem, symmetrically so between left and right. So that was the baseline. I wouldn't say it was exactly our expectation because when we looked at questions more narrowly of technology politics uh, from earlier this decade, we didn't find this polarization. We saw libertarian right and, and liberal left collaborating shoulder to shoulder uh, on some questions and people disagreeing on other questions. So we haven't in the past found this kind of polarization. Uh, and and uh, so, so I wasn't quite sure mm -hmm. what we would find. Uh, what I didn't expect to find was what we ended up finding, which was consistent across different measures in different ways of specifying the data and that was the asymmetric polarization that just popped up again and again whether we looked at links whether we looked at text whether we looked at uh, twitter or whether we looked at facebook that was so, the big so, surprise yeah so so let's focus in on that and that's a lot of what the the book is really talking about which is that um you know for all of the talk that that the you know, and again, using these phrases as useful shorthand, that, that the left and the right had sort of a symmetric uh, media ecosystem or that they were sort of uh, involved in similar kinds of, of filter bubbles, if you want to use that, that phrase. Um, you found something very, very different. So what is it that you found? So what we found was that the right wing of the media ecosystem and in a second I'll explain how I define how we define that uh, empirically uh, behaved 
exactly as the models of echo chambers or filter bubbles would predict. It was insular, it amplified identity consistent messages, uh, it was distinct from everything else. But we didn't see the same thing uh, on the left. Instead, what you had was a media ecosystem all the way from historically conservative uh, uh, publications like the Wall Street Journal all the way to the HuffPo and Mother Jones um, uh, and the Daily Kos were a single media ecosystem that linked to each other and uh, uh, tweeted each other and shared uh, each other's materials so that we had this high asymmetry with a very insular and distinct right wing and an integrated rest. Rather than right and left, we had right and rest. Let me try to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, what do I, let's start with what do I mean by right and left. We used a very uh, um, um, simple partisan measure where we looked at 45,000 Twitter users who had retweeted either Trump or Clinton. Uh, we found that of the 45,000, barely a handful of, 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 of a few hundred retweeted both. So it's very clear that retweeting one was an act of, of endorsement and support. And then we looked at the sharing patterns of news sites by these people. Sites that were shared more than four to one by Trump retweeters, we called right. Sites that were shared more than four to one by Clinton uh, retweeters, we called left. And then center right and center left were three, two, two, three ratios of sharing and center were 50-50 sharing between these two groups. So, so this is not our judgment about the contents of the sites. It's not our judgment about what should count or shouldn't count as right or left. It's purely the description of the patterns of endorsing sharing by people whose behavior on Twitter defines them as endorsing Trump versus endorsing Clinton. So that's what we mean by left, center, left, uh, uh, center, center, right, and right. It's a behavioral measure. Second, we then looked uh, at, different, at different measures of how these sites related to each other. First, we used just HTML links, just basically I'm a site, I write a story, I have a source, I link to a source, I'm saying this is my source, this is my source of authority, this is my source of inspiration, whatever it is, I'm creating a connection, I'm citing essentially, and we're creating a citation network that gives us an image of the supply side and what the producers of media pay attention to on each side. And here, it's interesting because Facebook has no control over this, Twitter has no control over this, this is not filter bubble, this is the, an image of the supply side. And here already we saw very stark asymmetry with sites on the right linking to each other overwhelmingly more often than to the other uh, four uh, quintiles, whereas each of the other four quintiles mostly linked to the center and center-left professional journalism sites, to, to the Times, uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, the Post, to CNN, uh, uh, to, to the Journal, uh, to the Hill, to a whole bunch of sites that were politically oriented but set up along more traditional journalistic lines. 
uh, and played essentially, tried to play a, 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 a neutral, critical of both sides kind of position, and uh, also linked uh, internally within each of the quintiles. But that was the big distinction, is that all three quintiles, center, center left, and center, were very clearly anchored around traditional media, whereas the right was anchored around um, right-wing oriented media. And the more exclusively right-wing you were, uh, the, more ex the more attention you got. The other dramatic thing is that there was practically no center-right. There were practically no publications that got any significant attention. What counted as center-left, uh, as center-right, were essentially the never-Trump sites to a mm -hmm. great extent, and they got practically no attention. Um, mm. they, 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 they were wiped out. Some of these sites, when we look at 2012, which we have a little bit of data still left over from then, uh, like the National Review or the Weekly Standard, still had standing and, and visibility when Mitt Romney was the Republican candidate, but they got... Um, uh, shrunk to almost nothing in the context hmm. of the 2016 election. Uh, now, it's ironic that where we stand today is that the National Review is center-right, but that's just a, the shape of the Republican Party and what's happened to it over the last 30 years. Right. Uh, but um, uh, it was, after all, founded as the, as the standard bearer for the right wing of the party. Right, right. Um, but yeah. that's what happens when you have successful movements. They took over, and then they became uh, the traditionalists, relatively speaking. So yeah. that was the big finding. And, and it was true when we looked at the supply side. It was true when we looked at the demand side, when we looked at how uh, uh, users were tweeting. So again, people who tweeted Breitbart also tweeted Fox News, also tweeted the Daily Caller, and were much, much more insular. The big difference being that when you look at the demand side, even crazier sites, whether they're the Gateway Pundit, Truth Feed, True Pundit, became among the top 10, 15 uh, sites, uh, which again, while you saw some of that happening, particularly before the election, when you looked at Facebook sharing, it was somewhat mm -hmm. more extreme uh, on the left than, on the, than, than, than the producer side. Uh, but again, the prominence of these sites was nothing like what it was on the right when you looked at the left, uh, let alone the center left or the center. Um, interesting. Yeah, and, and, and then one of the other aspects that I think comes through in the book is, um, is the idea of, of how much Fox News in particular drove a lot of uh, a lot of everything and for all the talk of of how much Facebook may have influenced things the data doesn't uh, you, can, you can correct me if I'm wrong but it doesn't seem to support that that viewpoint so so um, I think it's re this is a really important point and I would start actually with materials that are not ours that support that position so that we okay. don't uh, we don't seem completely uh, off the wall here. First of all, <laughs> if you look at, uh, no, because this was so counter, when we started to observe this, it was so counter narrative that we needed to go and, and, and look for additional work to support b uh, uh, our position because it was so inconsistent with what most everybody else, whether it's, it's policymakers or, or 
uh, journalists were writing, and it was uh, mm -hmm. it was really important to try to get it right. We we had no interest in just making a point as opposed to getting it right because it's dangerous. Right. Um, so if you look at the Pew uh, 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 surveys from right after the election, it's very clear that uh, when they asked Trump supporters, 40% said their primary source of news was Fox News, 7 or 8% said that it was Facebook. Uh, similarly, uh, um, when uh, uh, you saw some empirical research, particularly after the book, after our book came out, there have been a couple of papers in science from early 2019 uh, by two teams. Uh, one that looked at Facebook, the other that looked at Twitter. In each case, uh, it was very clear that um, there's a very narrow demographic that shared all the craziest stuff. And that also happens to be the demographic of Fox News. That is to say, over 65-year-old conservatives. Uh, so, so what we did was we started by just trying to quantify, looking at uh, topics that were very prominent online at a certain moment, and then became strong on TV and comparing. So if you take, for example, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory that mm -hmm. a DNC staffer um, uh, rather than that the Russians um, um, uh, exposed the DNC emails. When it came online initially and circulated only in uh, online media, it got some attention, but the attention is completely dwarfed by the number of stories online, by the number of tweets, by the number of Facebook shares. When it shows up a year and a half later, on Fox and Friends in the morning, all through the day until Hannity at night. Even the online activity spikes to several times more than when it was uh, only online. Uh, when we look, we have a full chapter primarily focused on the year after the election, not on the period before the election, uh, on how, on the role Fox News played in uh, diverting attention from the Russia investigation in, uh, on, on defending the president, essentially. And again, here you see that when concepts like the deep state, the idea, so we have, for example, all the stories that mention deep state from 2012 until uh, uh, 2018. It's very clear that until the election, you're mostly talking Turkey and Egypt, you're talking the traditional usage, here and there, there are some libertarians and, and, and both left and right libertarians who are criticizing the national security state. But mostly it's about Turkey and Egypt. You, we, you, and you do that when, you, when you, you can use text analysis to see what the conversation is about. Mm -hmm. As soon as December rolls around and there begin to be um, uh, intimations that there are questions of Russian interference in the election, the concept of the deep state gets reframed as Obama holdovers in the national security and law enforcement establishments are trying to undermine Trump. That's circulating for about two months online before it suddenly, with the Flynn firing, hits Fox News, and then suddenly it spikes and becomes uh, of major interest. And again, it peaks over the entire following year, it peaks every time a major development happens, whether it's the Comey firing and the Mueller uh, 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 appointment, 
whether it's the revelations of the Trump Tower meeting, whether it's the searches of Paul Manafort, every time deep state arises, but it spikes on TV and then uh, uh, online follows. So it's very clear that the majority of uh, uh, the audience is paying attention to television, that Fox mm -hmm. News is very consistent in its um, mobilization, uh, and that it's influencing uh, many, many, many more people, and, and it's a much more important source for many more of the people, and even the people who are, who are being influenced online um, uh, are the same demographic that mostly, that generally don't use online as much, they're older, and, and that they are the core demographic of, of, of Fox News. That's, that's even who's being influenced. Uh, online. Um, the big differences between the right and the left is that because people on the right pay such tightly scripted attention, and by people I mean audiences, audiences mm -hmm. on the right play, pay such tightly scripted attention to a narrow set of sites anchored in Fox News and talk radio uh, the sites don't police each other for truthfulness. There's no mm -hmm. angle essentially so showing that what you said is not true. Instead, they police each other and compete with each other on how well they confirm uh, identity bias, on how well they conform to the narrative that the partisan uh, uh, loyal uh, uh, address. On the left, by contrast, because the audience pays attention not only to the partisan sites, but also to the mainstream journalistic sites that are constantly trying to attract attention, but also to, to compete with each other on how truthful they are or how well they check their facts, uh, there's a much more of a tension between the impulse to confirm identity, which is there for everyone, and the, and the constraint to not go too far off uh, uh, in, in your characterization. So we have a chapter where we compare uh, the two stories. One, Trump raped a 13-year-old at a Jeffrey Epstein party. The other is Bill Clinton flew to Pedophilia Island on Jeffrey Epstein's plane uh, 20 however many times. Uh, mm -hmm. These two narratives show up in the spring of 2016. They're exactly the same in their structure. They get pushed by some of the craziest Facebook sites on both left and right. But the difference is that on the left, within days, they get debunked by sites like, uh, uh, by, by, by sources like um, Jezebel, The Daily Beast, The Guardian. On the right, and once they get debunked by those sources, everybody ignores them. Pretty. Mm -hmm. On the right, by contrast, you see the story actually emerging the anti-Clinton story actually emerging on Fox News. That's the, source, that's the story uh, that Fox News uses essentially to come out of being neutral as among the primary players and full-throated in support of Trump after he wins the, the, the after it's clear that he's going to win the nomination. Mm -hmm. uh, they get attention back. That becomes their most Facebook-shared story of the entire election. They propagated not only online, but also on TV, including the 6 o'clock news with Brett Beyer. And that becomes the major source of legitimation and authenticity that everybody online, the entire crazy ecosystem of conspiracy theories, eventually 
they end up sending Hillary Clinton to Pedophilia Island six times in a in a piece that that uh, Eric Prince uh, uh, speaks about on on uh, Breitbart, Sirius a, a XM uh, radio. They end up sending uh, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, um, arranging for Haitian kids to be delivered to to to, to Bill's uh, taste. I mean, really crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. None of which, not once is debunked by anybody on the right, all of which is repeated up and down the food chain on the right wing because the economic competitive conditions under which they operate make it impossible for them to stop and say, wait, this is crazy. There's truth, and then there's what fits our story. If you do that, you lose attention. And they're all bound by this crazy competitive framework to just feed the outrage and never to resist it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's it's definitely a, a really interesting thing that sort of comes out is sort of how, how the, the two things um, go. Now, I know that, um, you know, and every time we sort of bring up this idea or this suggestion, we get, we get yelled at and, and people like to make, um, you know, equivalency arguments. And so, you know, everyone, if you complain about Fox News, you always get the retort of like, well, you know, MSNBC or even CNN are sort of the same, but on the other side. Um, and your book goes into some of the data on, on that and how that's sort of an inaccurate argument too, right? Yeah, yeah. You just, you, when you look at actually trying to measure uh, the kinds of crazy stories when you're taking things like what I just described, you see that the the correction mechanisms are different. We do, for example, a case study of the the so-called um, um, uh, prizes for fake news that that Trump and the GOP handed out mm-hmm. uh, to mainstream media, and you just go one by one, and you see how each one of them, yes, they were there, they made errors, but the rate at which they um, uh, they were corrected. And the, and the extent to which they decayed and stopped being circulated once they were corrected is completely different than what we see uh, on the right, where essentially fact-checking just doesn't play a role. In fact, when you look at sharing of, of facts like, like PolitiFact, like fact-check, uh, they're all coded left-wing in our source because nobody pays attention to them essentially on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's the that's that's the, so, so you do see. Uh, do I think that there is that that MSNBC has been trying as a business model to copy uh, uh, Fox News? I think MSNBC has been trying to be the Fox News of the left, but I think yep. that the media consumption patterns of audiences on the left, the range and diversity of sources that people on the left pay attention to the fragmentation and diversity of the audience rather than being a single relatively uniform white identity and evangelical audience that's the heart of of the fox news audience has made it extremely difficult for msnbc to genuinely mirror uh uh fox news um but uh, again that's that's provisional it's it's possible that things will change. It's it's important to recognize that by the time MSNBC changed its strategy to try to create this kind of an outrage industry for the left, uh, uh, it had already been 18 years since um, since Rush Limbaugh launched uh, his 
market-creating initiative in 1988, and it was 10 years after Fox News uh, launched its uh, approach. So, so we, we have, the right has an almost 20 years running start on the left in trying to create this outrage market. And that's, uh, and, and, and I think that's created real constraints on the competitive environment in which MSNBC can really just go all in and the extent to which they're constrained by the fact that their audience is just used to a different form of reporting. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me, and, and the book touches on it a little bit, but, um, you know, one of the things that, that lots of people just generally wonder, right, you know, when you talk about talk radio, for example, which sort of, you know, kicked off a lot of this, it's it's pretty much all, you know, considered right-wing talk radio, and there there was, like, the attempt with Air America, for example, to sort of build a, a left-wing version of talk radio, which, you know, effectively flopped uh, and, and went out of business. Um, I mean, do you have any sense or is there anything that you guys found that, that suggests, you know, why, why is it that, that, that you have this sort of asymmetry between, between media and media consumption, uh, so, of, you know? So we, we, we suggest two primary uh, uh, drivers of the difference. Uh, the first is just a plain first mover advantage. If you think that all media, uh, to some extent, attract people when they give them uh, identity confirming news and to some extent repel them when they don't. Uh, truthful, me let's imagine that for a moment an ideal truthful medium. Mm -hmm. uh, at any given time, it will give some mix of identity-confirming and identity-disconfirming news, and people will more or less trust it and more or less dislike it, uh, primarily based on who the party in power is, on the assumption that mainstream media will always criticize, to some extent, the party in power. And that mm -hmm. is something that we see when we, look when we look at trust in media over time. Generally speaking, audiences from both parties oscillate and trust the media a little less when their own party is in power and a little more when the other party is in power. And that's, and that's a fairly clear baseline effect. Um, the second thing uh, uh, that happens is that um, when you start actually seeing, and that's what essentially happened uh, uh, here, if one side moves first, as the right wing did here, and produces news that is systematically more identity confirming because it's less connected to truth, then the mainstream media will more often, just by sticking with pure truth, will more often be identity confirming to the other side. Because mm -hmm. more often it will call, that's a lie. And that means that the second mover on the other side is trying to come in, they're going to encounter, they're going to be competing with, with fact-oriented media that are already more consistently identity confirming for that other side because of the move on the right wing in this case. But it could have been the other way. It could have been the left wing as well. So, so I think part of what happened is that because the right move left, mainstream media appeared more left oriented simply mm. because they were less, they were more constrained by facts, whereas the right <laughs> began to be unconstrained. The right. second thing is that the, 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 the demographic makeup of the two major political coalitions in the U.S. is very different. Mm -hmm. The media, mar the, essentially after the uh, Nixon-Southern strategy, 
after the Civil Rights Act on one hand and the politicization of evangelicals in response to the new left and, and, and the women's movement in the 70s. You essentially had somewhere between 20, 25, maybe as many as 30% of the population who were white, who saw white identity as, as even if it wasn't self-conscious, it was very much a fear of the new and the other, constituting a new base in the Republican Party uh, alongside evangelicals. This created, and you saw in the 70s and particularly the 80s, you saw Christian broadcasting emerging dramatically to fill a part of that. Mm -hmm. You saw Rush Limbaugh and Christian broadcasting by 96 had essentially almost the same market share that Fox and 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 uh, um, and uh, radio have today. Uh, and that's a fairly homogeneous in uh, uh, um, that's a fairly homogeneous market share that once you in introduce a massive number of channels, either by going to AM radio or by going to cable, uh, it becomes a real business model to go and attract that particular market segment. On the left, the alliance between uh, black voters, Latino voters, women, uh, more working class, more uh, um, uh, professional class, means that you have multiple market segments uh, in radio, that are specific to each segment. In, in, in radio, you also have NPR, which is more like the Wall Street Journal in that regard, fact-based in its reporting, but editorial slant that supports people's identity. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so all of these together mean that the market is much more fragmented and there hasn't been the same kind of sustained demand to produce uh, the right-wing media ecosystem. And, and in that regard, what's critically important to understand is that what happened after 1988 was not that suddenly there was right-wing media and there was never right-wing media before. There was right-wing media from before World War II ended and human events was launched. The critical thing that happened in the 80s and 90s is that right-wing outrage-stoking media became big business. Mm -hmm. and, and it was that draw that allowed it to expand its influence uh, to, to then, you saw it with Clear Channel and Premier Programming on radio, you saw it with Fox News, uh, and ultimately by the time Breitbart rolls around in 2007, uh, uh, the competitive environment is such that you can't play straight man anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no market there. Right. That's the, that's to me, is the, the, the critical distinction here is this much longer term difference in the structure of the market for attention to right wing outrage versus to left-wing outrage. Yeah. So in, in, in going through the book, you know, I, I mean, I think you lay out the case really, really well. And, um, and obviously there's all the data that you have supporting it and you, you cite other studies and, and it's, it's very, very comprehensive. Um, why do you think that there's so much focus on, on the internet as the issue and, and Facebook in particular, why, why, why does nobody talk about this, you know, fragmented media ecosystem the way you guys have? So I think that uh, there was a widespread sense of shock among mm -hmm. uh, elites, let's call it that, uh, and not be bashful about it. Uh, this should not have happened. Uh, you can disagree politically. 
You can think Mitt Romney is great. You can think Barack Obama is great. You can't think if you are a well-educated, etc. person that Trump is great. That was the initial response. And so the, the, the question was, what's new? And I mm-hmm. think what, what, what that did was it latched on to this sense that technology was an overwhelming force. It was out of control. It was reshaping our lives. It was, it was sweeping away everything we know. And, and that anxiety that shows up every decade. I'm sure you remember in the mid-90s, it was kiddie porn. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in, in the mid-2000s, it was uh, uh, cyber terrorism of one form or another mm-hmm. uh, and, and piracy. Uh, now, now it's, it's uh, um, um, disinformation and propaganda. There's always some anxiety for, for we, we've constructed a society that is in clear crisis the Great Recession uh, 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 really broke the idea, the governing economic ideas of the preceding 30 years without providing a clear alternative. Uh, mm-hmm. We're looking left and right and we're seeing democracies under threat across the North Atlantic. And we're looking for what is it that's new. And technology lent itself because it felt completely new. It felt like it was moving very fast and it felt like it was... Um, uh, out of control, while at the same time not forcing either mainstream media or social scientists to take a political position. And both professional journalists and professional social scientists are loath to point the finger at a particular political orientation. Mm-hmm. And what our book allowed us to do was that the data at this point is so overwhelming that it would require uh, mental gymnastics of uh, heroic proportions <laughs> to not point the finger at one political side. But that's in real tension with how both social scientists and professional journalists want to operate, which is to find reasons that are that don't put the social scientist or the journalist on one side or another of the political right. So it was a convenient answer for an out-of-control human process that could explain why we had such a disruption. Unfortunately, uh, the facts don't conform to the convenient answer. Right, right. Um, but, you know, there are people who point to to the specific things like, you know, what I mentioned in the intro of, you know, the role of, of Cambridge Analytica and and Russian trolls in using Facebook in one way or another to 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 influence voters. Um, and and what's what is your thinking on those? So so I think that's really important. Uh, I'd say the Russian chapter was the single hardest chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us to write, because I, I genuinely, when I started looking at this, I was completely open to the possibility that we would turn our big machine on and we would find that, in fact, we were under an external attack. And and um, and that would have been uh, that would have been very scary. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. So so we just tried to look at the facts instead. So let's back up. First of all, there are people and we, too, who when you look at Twitter, you see bots. When mm-hmm. you look at Twitter with some awareness of which bots are Russian, you see Russians. All right. you need to do is read the is read the Mueller uh, uh, indictment on the on the Russian interference. Uh, 
uh-huh. uh, or or uh, read some of the materials from some of the congressional investigations, you know that they're there. Yeah. If what you're trying to prove is that there was intervention, you will find the evidence. And given how scary that was, the early papers that came out with evidence of Russian intervention were quite shocking and got a lot of attention appropriately. What we tried to do instead was to say, okay, there's a huge difference between evidence of activity and evidence of impact. What we tried to do, because, and, and we could do because we had uh, so much data on the background of what else is going on, was to begin to actually assess what was the incremental contribution of the Russian stories. Mm-hmm. When did they show up? How important were they relative to other stories? And that put them in a much more muted context. So do we see Russian intervention? For sure. Do we identify bot activity? For sure. Uh, and, and we describe it uh, uh, in the book. Uh, but I'll give you an example. There's an, in, in one of the, in one of the uh, articles of the first Mueller indictment, there's a story about how uh, uh, one Facebook page and one Twitter handle uh, pushed voter fraud in the summer and later in the fall of uh, 2016. So we looked at every single story online that mentioned voter fraud from the beginning of the election cycle until the day after election day. And in fact, there are two peaks, one small, one large, exactly at those points where the Russians interfered. So that looked really interesting. If they caused this idea of voter fraud, that would be huge. It -hmm. turns out that when we zoom in on the day-by-day, hour-by-hour references, in both cases, in the first case, there's about a week where Trump goes and does a Reddit AMA and says there's going to be voter fraud. Then there are three court decisions that strike down uh, state laws that use voter fraud essentially for voter suppression purposes. And then it's all over O'Reilly and Hannity. And then it goes to the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN. And then after about six or seven days, after the peak of the stories is over, the Russian Post comes in. Same thing happens. Same thing happens in 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 October, just before the election, uh, when when uh, uh, Pelosi and Reid are already asking for Trump to pull back what he said, etc. And after the peak, the Russian top ten GOP handle steps in and say, "Oh, remember there's voter fraud." So that's a case where you have a specific allegation. Is it illegal for them to do it? Sure. Is the indictment justified? Sure. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason to think? that in a flurry from O'Reilly and Hannity to the Post and CNN, from from Trump himself to to Pelosi and Reid, that the incremental contribution of one handle from the Russians actually made any difference? Ludicrous. Hmm. Uh, So so that's what we we tried to do. We tried to look at what are the big... We look at email. We look at every story that mentioned the word email in relation to Clinton in the entire election campaign. Mm Mm-hmm. Overwhelmingly, throughout the entire period, the stories relate to the email server, to releases by the State Department, to the Inspector General of the State Department. Uh, The two most important cases are Comey's first and second announcements and retractions. By far more coverage of those. And when you look at the Gallup tracking poll that connects Clinton to email, it's already overwhelmingly focused on email two weeks before the Podesta email comes out, emails come out. 
So again, was there the DNC email hack? Absolutely. Were there two distinct spikes associated with the release of the DNC emails and the Podesta emails? Absolutely. Uh, were these overshadowed by uh, the more mundane, uh, well-intentioned uh, uh, State Department employees and, and well-intentioned journalists constantly looking for scandal around Clinton? Yes, those were the more important. And in this regard, mainstream media was the, by far more important in its focus on Clinton's scandal and framing Clinton as a scandal uh, 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 beset uh, uh, candidate than anything that the Russians did. And, and unless we recognize that, and unless we recognize how the scandal-mongering, negative coverage, horse race coverage was central to why the profound difference in suitability between these two candidates simply didn't play, uh, mm -hmm. I think we'll keep making the same mistakes and I think we'll keep suffering the same falls. Hmm. Um, and, and did you have any thoughts specifically about Cambridge Analytica? I mean, most of that was about the Russians. I, sometimes they get lumped together, but it, it, it was there were slightly different situations, well, right? Cambridge Analytica, I'm, I'm of two minds about. Uh, the company itself pretty clearly was selling snake oil. Right. Uh, even in its own admissions later, uh, uh, right. after the election, it was clear that they didn't actually use what they were using. What right. we do when we look at it, what, what we do when we analyze it specifically is we, looked at, we look at the best available scientific evidence from the people not who actually abused the data, but from the people who developed the techniques that Cambridge Analytica stole, as it were, uh, mm -hmm. and abused. Uh, on what they published in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy, uh, uh, National Academies, um, um, as their best results. Uh, so those are results that are very promising if you like this kind of stuff for marketing for the future. Uh, but the effect sizes that they were able to produce, even as, as late as 2016 and 2017, are minuscule. You're talking about a situation where for a set of 3 million people exposed to an advertisement, maybe 300 actually um, uh, bought something. If you're looking right. at something much, much, much cheaper, like just clicking through, still you're talking about tiny effects. Uh, so, so Cambridge Analytica, the reason I'm ambivalent is because there's no question that the core business model of Facebook and Google is to develop sufficient surveillance on their users to manipulate demand and then sell that ability to advertisers. That's, what they, that's how they make money. There's no reason to think they can't do it in politics, except, as we see now with Facebook pulling back a little bit their marketing, uh, right. because of political blowback. So, but but as, as a matter of the basic business model, uh, it's clear that the business model is oriented toward manipulating demand, and there's no reason to think that it can't be done at the individual level on politics. So that, to me, is the one area where we said, you know what, the evidence for today is that it's just not working well enough to tip an election, even a close election. Uh, however, Facebook actually sits on the data that nobody else has. You could right. go into Facebook and you could see, Let's look at Wisconsin. Let's look at Pennsylvania. Let's look at Michigan. Let's see who was targeted with what ads. Let's create likely voter turnout and election 
um, um, uh, uh, participation. Uh, and we'll see. We, we can actually, they probably sit on the data that will allow us to tell whether Facebook advertising, in this case, not the Cambridge Analytica stuff, but, the, but what the Trump campaign itself did and, and proudly said and, and described in, in news reports that they did in terms of both voter suppression of Democrats and voter turnout of Republicans. That we can find out. That's clearly in the business plan of Facebook and Google. That's clearly in the business plan of political campaigners today. That's a place where I think we can have real regulatory intervention by forcing transparency, uh, radical transparency. We need to know what kind of messages are being targeted to whom, in what forms uh, are people being defined, are these acceptable politically or not acceptable politically. Uh, but there's a big difference between saying this was the beginning of, a, of, a, of an image of a canary in the mine and saying this is what tipped the election. So, yeah. Analytica, no. Political advertising that highly targeted and behaviorally and experimentally uh, um, um, validated to achieve behavioral manipulation. That's the core business model. That's something for which we can and need a regulatory response. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, and I mean, I could talk about this for, for a very long time, but, but uh, I'm running out of time and, and you've, you've given us a lot of your time. Uh, but just to, to sort of round out the, the discussion, um, you know, you mentioned that, you know, social scientists certainly have been wary about sort of pointing a, a finger uh, and, and, you know, and, and ending up looking like it's, it's pointing at a particular political party or, or a particular media ecosystem and yet that is where you ended up uh, and i'm sure you've gotten some pushback from people who are you know the the usual accusation is is uh being a sore loser or something something along those lines how, how do you respond to to people who are saying that that you know you're sort of perhaps you know matching the data to your to your preconceived notions or something along those lines Look, the data is available. It's open. People can run their own analyses. When we published, for example, when we published uh, um, a preliminary report in the summer of 2017 before the book, uh, mm -hmm. there was some criticism of the Daily Caller and what it did. They asked us for the data. We said, here's the data. They came back and removed the stories that we, <laughs> that we pointed <laughs> out. So, so I, you know, at a certain point, either you are willing to be open in your methods, hand over the data, let people reanalyze it and disagree with you, or you're not. Um, there's also the, the, the baseline of, of looking at what it is that people are willing or not willing to trust. There's a scary uh, uh, Pew survey from 2014, just before the election cycle that we talk about, uh, where uh, survey subjects were asked a bunch of questions and then they were identified as consistently conservative, conservative, mixed, liberal and consistently liberal. And they were asked, what are the sites that you most trust? And mm -hmm. the consistently conservative respondents said Fox News, Hannity, Limbaugh and Glenn Beck. And mm -hmm. the consistently liberal said NPR, PBS, the BBC and the New York Times. Now, fundamentally, if you're in a conversation with someone who says, that Hannity and Limbaugh and Beck are the equivalent of PBS, the BBC, and the New York Times. Either they're lying or you have no foundation <laughs> for a conversation. Right. And, and at the end of the day, that's 
to me, I can only have conversations with people who are willing to accept that there is such a thing as transparent, rigorous method, mm -hmm. and that not everything is manipulable all the way down. <laughs> Do scientists make mistakes? For sure. Right. Do we consistently see, see things being pulled? For sure. Would I welcome people replicating what we've, done? what we've done? Absolutely. But that's another one of these things. Why did I start by saying, look at these two papers from science, two completely different groups, looking mm -hmm. at completely different data, coming up with, in different time frames, coming up with extremely similar findings. That, to me, is how you start to anchor yourself in reality, particularly in a world in which a chunk of people resists the very idea that there is such a truth. But they're not a majority. They're not even a bare majority. Maybe they're 25% of the population. And it's really, really critical that those of us who are not inside the propaganda feedback loop not turn around in a circular firing squad and say, oh, maybe there really isn't any truth. Maybe we're all, we're all biased. <laughs> sure, we're all biased. Yeah. But we have methods to be transparent about what we're doing to check each other, and we should embrace those and, and understand that they actually put us in a different position from people who don't use those methods and don't use those approaches. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, th I think that's a, that's a really good point. And, it's, and it, I think that's actually a good way to sort of underline um, much of what the what the book is getting at and, and why it's it's such a valuable uh, contribution. Um, and so just to remind people, the book itself is called Network Propaganda um, uh, with the subtitle Manipulation, Disinformation, Radicalization in American Politics. Um, it's it's a really, really worthwhile read. Um, I, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it has colorful charts. <laughs> it's, um, and, and, and uh, you know, a lot of rigorous uh, detail and data and, and citations. Um, it's and it's it's a really worthwhile concept contribution in, in terms of thinking about a, an issue that a lot of people are talking about. Um, so, uh, Yochai, thank you very much for, for writing the book uh, along, I should mention, your co-authors, Robert Ferris and Hal Roberts. Um, and, uh, and, and thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast and talk about it. It was a great pleasure to spend the time talking to you. Great. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. Someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tent.